JB Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 71 of the Insure Tech Geek Podcast, talking about HOA and landlord insurance with Atai Benzakin from Honeycomb Insurance. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about tech that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. podcast before thanksgiving gobble 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 always get so excited around thanksgiving i just know that well see i'm from south louisiana so the common things we have is uh sweet potato casserole a little bit of encrusted marshmallows on top we got uh this thing called spinach madeleine which is kind of like a cheesy spinach dip if you had to beg it on something it's like uh yeah it's like spinach and cheese it's like a spinach but 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 it's a side and then uh my mom makes some great stuffing, and then my mom my mom's really not uh, into turkey, so she actually does a, f- a whole beef fillet, which uh, trust me, I ain't complaining about because I will take a fillet any day over turkey. Uh, so we we uh, we definitely have a good time going to Baton Rouge for Thanksgiving. Rob Galbraith with us from San Antonio, Texas. Rob, how you doing? Doing good, James. Doing good. Yeah, you got yet uh, gonna stay in San Antonio for Thanksgiving, hang out with the family. You ready to get, get get your eat on, get some food in? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're excited. I know my wife's excited, and uh, if for those of you here recording, my dog's excited too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, everybody's excited about Thanksgiving. Excited about Thanksgiving football. Of course, my Aggies lost their game to Ole Miss last week. Kind of a pain, painful loss. We're we're definitively out of the contention for the SEC championship now, and. Uh, it ain't going to happen, but that's okay. We always have next year, right? Yay, hope springs eternal. Oh, geez. It's okay. And with us from Tel Aviv, Israel, we have Itai Ben-Zakin. Itai, how's it going, man? Going well. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Super happy to have you on. Talk about Honeycomb Insurance. We're going to deep dive into InsureTech and Honeycomb and HOA and Landlord Insurance. Uh, in just a second, remember that if you're watching this on any of our streaming, because we, you know, we stream this on uh, Twitter and Facebook, LinkedIn, Vimeo. If you text "geek out" to six six eight six six, G E E K O U T, geek out to six six eight six six. Make sure you never miss an episode. We send the show notes, links. We do not spam you. We send you just every time there's an episode, we send you a link to the episode and the the uh, the articles. And if we discuss any news stories, it's in there. So geek out to six six eight six six. Back to our special guest. Itai Benzakin from Honeycomb Insurance. And for those of you who like to look at the website while we're talking, it's honeycombinsurance.com. Itai, we're going to talk about you for a second. Um, you, you got a bachelor's in computer engineering at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. You got an MBA from the Wharton School, you know, little college up there in the Northeast. Uh, if you haven't heard of Wharton, you should uh, look it up. So you, you've done some really interesting things, like many, many, many Israelis that we've had on this podcast uh, you spent uh, your requisite time in the military as a lieutenant research team leader in the Israeli Defense Force, and uh, you've worked in a bunch of different industries. This seems to be pretty pretty common with a lot of the uh, the Israeli folks that come on the show. Um, is that uh, there's always a almost always a defense background uh, and uh, a, a pretty neat educational background, and then you've worked in a bunch of different spaces from like Intel to Boston Consulting Group. Then you got into insurance, it looks like about uh, 12 years ago. What did you originally want to do career-wise and, and what brought you to insurance? Yeah, so um, I think that's something that's pretty common with entrepreneurs and, and entrepreneurship is, is definitely a big thing in Israel. You know, we're, you know we're, we like to call ourselves the startup nation and all that. When I started my career, you know, when I studied computer engineering, I thought I'm going to be a computer engineer, a team leader, maybe CTO one day. And I really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed the studies. I actually did a four-year program in Israel. It's typically a three-year. And I really sifted in every every type of knowledge that I could. Then I started working as an engineer and I enjoyed that. But I think that, you know, con- connecting this to my leadership experiences in the military and the fact that I've always wanted to try new things, it made sense for me. And it kind of started being being 
pretty apparent to me that I wanted to get exposed to the business side. Okay, now I know how you build the product and from the really deep trenches. Now I want to get exposed to like how you actually do the design and, and how do you define what to build and, and how do you sell it and how do you make profit out of that? That kind of drove me to do an MBA. I started looking around, said, okay, which schools exist? And there, there were a few folks from Israel who did do MBAs in, in very good schools in the U.S. So I joined that community. You know, I, I did the MBA at Wharton and I you know, sifted a lot of knowledge, got exposed to a lot of interesting experiences. And, and then, too, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. So I, uh, I went to the Boston Consulting Group, which is something that a lot of MBAs do and to get exposed to a lot of things. And I, I looked, you know, I worked in a few different industries and it was it was very exciting. And then I, I said, OK, now I, I've learned a lot of those things. I want to go work somewhere where I can own, where I can go back and start being a business manager, even within a bigger organization, but really own and manage my, my own business. And Queen Street was Perfect for that because they're a company that really has a lot of businesses within the business. And I joined at a time where, you know, they were really also acquiring a lot of new businesses. So it was really great for me. And I did that for four years and I enjoyed that. That was the longest period of time that I ever worked somewhere that was not my business. But again, ants in my pants, like a lot of other entrepreneurs and, and the real desire to say, okay, I've done this within a business now. I think I can do it completely on my own and started my first company, uh, which was called Comprendi. It was a marketing company. A lot of Queen Street is marketing and insurance. So I took the marketing part first and uh, we did some pretty interesting things in the um, social media marketing space, which was kind of new in 2013. It's funny to think about that. And then, um, you know, built the company, got it to break even, did some really interesting partnerships with both Facebook and Twitter, but ad tech and, and marketing technologies started being really tough, you know, around those 2016, 2017. So looking into the future, I said, you know, do I invest another five years in this or do I go pursue a bigger dream? And uh, it kind of brought me back to the insure tech world after I did a little bit of exploration. Um, it's kind of my old stomping ground and it was really happening and the transformation was starting to happen in insure tech. And it was also coming from all those directions that uh, were, were really things that I like doing and that I feel like are a strength of me. So that's how myself and actually a, a Wharton professor, uh, Professor Ron Berman, who's, who's a friend, we started a think tank and kind of zeroed in on that market after looking at a few different markets and figured out that this is a market that is still super archaic, big market, $20, $30 billion in the US alone. And a lot of what, what could get better there is really about how you gather more data and how you interpret that in a much more sophisticated way with tech. Um, so that's how we ended up here. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, I actually learned a lot from the advertising industry. Uh, my first four years of JB Knowledge was working for ad agencies, 2001 to 2004. We built a lot of websites for ad agencies, worked in a lot of digital marketing, helped them make a transformation, helped them build a lot of technology to drive online marketing. And this was back before you built a website for search engine results. And I'm not kidding, like the first few years, like you, you didn't even consider search engines. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like, wait, you mean there's buyers on Google? And that became the main websites went from being really pretty to being very convertible, right? I mean, it was, I learned a lot through that. And so there's a, there's a lot to be learned in media, uh, advertising, ad tech. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be learned in general from having a diverse multi-industry background. I mean, I, I, I myself for the last 20 years at JB Knowledge, we've worked in a bunch of different industries, heavy in construction, heavy in insurance, but we've done a lot of stuff outside of that. Again, a few years in ad tech. So it's, a, it's exciting seeing how you took those lessons and are probably applying those. Of course, uh, Rob has really, uh, in his book, uh, which, which I've read, great book, end of insurance as we know it. And in his commentary on the show, I've learned a lot from him just looking at the cost of customer acquisition and the amount of spend that the major insurance carriers put down on advertising and digital media. It is mind-blowing to see what they spend acquiring customers. They are huge consumers of uh, advertising, so I'm sure that uh, that helps as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those things are, you know, I nowadays I feel like running ads on digital is almost like breathing for me. So when we had to do some tests in the initial days or when we're thinking about our direct strategy, I think this is an amazing tool to have. And I think now I'm, I'm, I'm probably using it in a more effective way because initially I, I was really interested in how do we build a better machine that does this for, for everybody. And, uh, and it made sense in the early days, but then, you know, Facebook and Google just own that space and they're really sophisticated, deep tech 
companies. It's better to compete with insurance companies. And that's another learning of like, okay, choose your competitor as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So walk me through the founding. What's the origin story? You know, it's like Marvel. We talk about the superhero origin story. What's the origin story for Honeycomb? Don't, don't, don't take me past the beginning day. Just get me, get me up until the first day. What helped you identify the problem and, and what were the steps that took to form Honeycomb and why? So I'd say it's, it's kind of a combination of me really wanting to start a business in the insure tech space. And a personal experience that my my friend and, and the, the person who helped me start it, Professor Ron Berman, had being on an HOA board. Um, we've looked at a few different markets in, in insurance. Um, some of those markets have been transformed and, and you know, we're you know, we didn't want to go into a place where somebody else has already solved most of the problems. And I think from the experience that Ron had being on an HLA board and, and the humongous amount of effort and, and inefficiency that he had to, he encountered there, brought us to the zone. And then as we started looking at the, the key parameters that we defined as what makes a market that we think is going to be a great long-term play for us. We find all, we found all of them. Initially, we thought about this as an HOA insurance only play. And then we figured out the same policy or more or less the same policy also covers, uh, it's a master policy for landlord buildings too, which, which are, you know, as big as the HOA space and actually saw that, you know, there's a lot of inefficiency there too. So it's really a combination of a personal experience and a BCG consultant thinking in the BCG way about like, what is the perfect market to disrupt? And that then it's kind of happened. Yeah, it's it's good. And of course, it, having a consultant's mindset helps you learn how to study problems, right? I mean, I I know that was something I learned just in my brief six months total that I was at Price Waterhouse was definitely ran through a lot of how to analyze and how to look for problems and how to help solve them, which uh, certainly was a uh, a pivotal uh, skill for you here, uh, Rob. I know you've got a follow up question. Uh, that's why we changed. That's why we changed it because <laughs> people weren't sure how to pronounce it. Yeah. You know, every company, you know, as you really well articulated, right? Every solution that you come up with, it's almost never your first bite at the apple that really kind of resonates with the marketplace. There's always a journey. There's always pivots along the way. I know this space has gotten a lot of buzz and a lot of folks have focused on it. They've talked about, you know, these are folks that should be investing in things like IoT devices and others. Like we, we've had other guests on the show that have recognized that it's an underserved space. So what have you learned along the journey and what are some of those twists and turns that you've made along the way. Yeah, and it's very true. You know, we started exploring the space. We liked the characteristics of it. And then initially we thought the biggest problem is why is this taking so long? Why is it taking two weeks to get a quote? It's 2019 or something, right? When, when we were there initially. And we actually pretty quickly that that was Agilius, which is the Latin for more agile. But I, I figured out most Americans don't use that word that frequently, so it was not a very good, memorable consumer brand name. But Agilius was really about taking the Queen Street experience of carinsurance.com, which I managed for four years, and, and saying, why can't we do something like that in the multifamily property space? And we built it. We built it, you know, very MVP, very Pareto. Uh, we got it to market. We started selling policies online, not real time because there weren't any APIs, but we got as close as we could in kind of the Zappos fashion to, you know, if I have to buy this and ship it myself, like would the customers buy? And would it be a business, assuming that I still need to fix the issue that I need to ship the, the, the shoes myself? And we learned a lot from this. We learned a lot. First of all, we validated some of the hypotheses. We validated that there were customers out there who were seeking an experience that didn't exist for online. They were actually not the majority. What we also learned is how inefficient the incumbents are in their operation of underwriting. And then kind of answered the question of like, why, do, why is it taking two weeks? It's not taking two weeks because the incumbents are stupid. They're not. They're very experienced. They've been doing this for decades. It's taking two weeks because none of the incumbents is really equipped um, with the right technology or had the time or the ability to prioritize this market to build something that really works well and automatically. And also because it's a more complex market. It's a four, sometimes it's a $10,000 policy. And then, you know, there's quite a bit, you know, there's, it's complex risk. It does require looking at a few different things uh, when you underwrite. So with, with the lack of, of digitization and, and data-driven products, they said, okay, we'll do it very thoroughly, very manually with people who are very experienced. And it works. It results in relatively low loss ratios 
but it, it meant that it was very unscalable and it took a lot of time. And in many cases, the consumers were the ones who got the short end of the stick because the price was very average. You know, for the company, it's okay. You know, the price is going to the average and there's not a lot of competition and the loss ratio is good. We're happy. If the loss ratio is not good, we increase the price for everybody and it works. Not There's no ETI coming to disrupt this market, though we're okay. We're okay. And and that really was the place where it, it, it kind of made sense to us to say, okay, it's not really creating just a streamlined experience, it's how do we create a, the ultimate underwriting machine that uses a lot more data and doesn't have to use so many people. Um, and, and again, from observing the industry, not from kind of sitting under a tree and having a, uh, an apple fall on us, we didn't invent uh, the wheel. We didn't reinvent the wheel, but we saw that inspections that insurance companies do are super insightful and, and they bring in a lot of really critical data that you don't have if you just look at the building from the outside or use you know, the basic information that's out there. And we said, we have the ability to build an inspection process that we can apply on 100% of the properties, which nobody else can do it because it's very costly and, and cumbersome. And we'll interpret a lot of that data that comes back, which is proprietary to us with AI that we know how to build. And, and I had a lot of experience building AI products, my co-founder had. So it felt to us, this is an area where we can apply our strengths to something that works, but actually make it a lot more efficient. So starting from, hey, why don't people sell it online to selling it online, but actually going through the, the bigger the bigger problem of like, okay, it can't be sellable online, not because the, the incumbents can't open an API. That's easy. They can do it. And they do it elsewhere. It's more that they, they were very afraid of this market. And they some of them had big losses in this market. And then they, they reverted to doing a lot of manual observation, a lot of slow, take it slow. And it, it was what the market had until until we entered. And then we see other competitors coming in. And eventually, this will become a much more efficient market. That's interesting. If I could just dive on that for just a second, Itai. You're saying that, that their fear of the market led to them raising technical barriers to making it easy to write because they simply didn't want a high volume of that business? It's more that they did things in a very manual way, putting a lot of experienced underwriters, spending hours on every risk, looking at it and discussing and, and, and making a manual decision on the property with, in most cases, with not a ton of information. Um, so it's not that they deliberately made the process slow. I think that, you know, the fact that there, everything has to be done by humans, including, you know, let's say somebody got a quote, but now the broker wants to change the deductible. That's another email to the underwriter or a phone call. Uh -huh. And until the underwriter sees the email and then they open it and then they have to remember, oh, that property. Oh, I don't want to give it a low deductible. Oh, so all that process is just it's an OK way to to stay away from problematic risks. But it's just not not workable in terms of, of how much how much inefficiency it creates and how much time it takes. And, you know, the, 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 the other thing that the incumbents did, and again, I can't blame them on that. The incumbents who are in this market, they're not, it's not like Progressive and Geico on auto insurance where they're like, this is my market. I'm going to put anything I can and more to win. They're like, okay, this is maybe market number five or 10 for me after a, a bunch of others where I have a lot of competition with Geico and Progressive. So let's just put a, you know, a hundred underwriters there that are already here. We hired them, maybe have, have them there. They're not doing a lot of other things and, and they'll do it and they'll do it well, but it would just be a kind of a high combined ratio type of business. Yeah. It, it's uh, underwriter workload has been cited many times on this show. And that is simply underwriters get overwhelmed. They have too much. The, the applications go to the bottom of the stack and they actually don't want to enable fat, you know, higher volume quoting because they, it's just, it's just more applications they won't get to because they don't want to, they don't trust an algorithm to make these decisions. They only trust, you know, humans doing workload, but they can't staff up too much because then they're, it, it, they kind of get out of, out of whack there. Rob, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because this, I think it's an interesting topic for the show. Yeah, you're right, James. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I can definitely talk to certain products, certain processes. I think about things like extending 
endorsements for Florida sinkhole coverage, right? And you were kind of worried about, wow, you know, I could really be on this big risk for this thing that I don't know a whole lot about. And so you could throw barriers in there. You could say, I've got to have a physical inspection to check to see if you have any existing cracks in your home or your driveway or things like that. And that's going to take, you know, 45 days before I could even tell you whether I can offer the product or not. And you'd say, well, 45 days, that's forever. I'm going to close up my house in two weeks. And it was like, yeah, we know that's the reason we put it in there is because we really don't want to sell this product, right? Or we want to do so very, very carefully. It is interesting that, you know, for most people, right, coming from outside the industry, it's like, why would you put friction into a process intentionally, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but from an underwriter perspective, it's like, hey, if I'm going to lose my shirt, like maybe it makes sense. And maybe those are the ways that I'm going to weed out the good risks from the bad risks. But obviously it, it leaves an opportunity. And so if you can remove friction and still maintain profitability where you really understand that risk, right? then you can swoop in and, and kind of undercut. And it sounds like that's what you're, what you're doing at Ty. And I, I'm curious, you know, obviously you talked about the online experience. You talked about being able to, to, to offer uh, coverage quicker and at a lower cost as part of your value proposition. But how have you customized your, your product and or services to maybe be a little bit more tailored for this audience that has kind of a range of, of needs for their protection that maybe um, traditional incumbents aren't offering? Yeah, no. So that's something we've spent quite a bit of time on. Um, we've done a, a good amount of marketing research to understand from our existing customers, the ones that we sold the first policies to, what's missing? Uh, what what do you not have on the policy? Sometimes they knew, sometimes they actually didn't know because it's a pretty complex coverage. So then we spent some time with brokers. I think there are certain policies in the market that are not bad, but I do I do see that a lot of the a lot of the business owner policies that are pretty generic that's been have been customized for for multifamily are not covering some of the basic elements at the high enough limit. For example, ordinance and law. Some of them give really low ordinance and law limits because there is some inefficiency in the way it's priced, and they didn't want to re price it or or rebuild the model. And and the other area that we saw was things that just have changed in the last decade. Yeah. Airbnb, right? People do it, right? Something we all do. And and right now most of the policies exclude that. And a lot of a lot of landlords and condo owners don't know that. You know, they buy a policy for travelers and yeah, here and there, you know, but if somebody slips in the in the hallway and breaks their hip and it's a two million dollar claim, they're open. They're they're not covered. Um Another thing that was funny for us to see, but you know, it makes sense, but it doesn't have to be this way in 2021 is barbecues, right? Um, incumbents, every time, you know, they ask, is there a barbecue grill, gas, uh, even on the property? If you say yes, no insurance. Now, I get it, but barbecue grills cause more fires and, and we might, you know, have issues with charcoal grills, maybe. But somebody in the U.S. wants to wants to gas grill in, in their in their backyard. It's kind of basic. It's absurd. Yeah. Like they have, they have a gas grill inside. And, and on top of that, a Traeger smoker is about as about as uh, safe as it gets. You know, you got I mean, it is it is b beyond me. And of course, I'm a hardcore meatarian. And so it, uh, it it has always seriously angered me that this was a disqualifying characteristic on an underwriting yeah. <laughs> form. Like, I'm like, you guys, you guys need to come to Texas and eat some good barbecue and you'll stop putting this on your stupid underwriting forms. Yeah, and I think it also leads into why we're doing things differently, because in my mind, I accept the fact that, you know, barbecues probably don't decrease the risk of fire. OK, they do increase the risk of fire, but there's a number. There's like there's data out there about claims. There's, you know, there's you know, potential to even say I estimate and then year two might I might adjust. But, you know, you want to you want to you want a barbecue, you want to want an Airbnb. There might be a, you know, a price for that. And, and if you don't, then you, you get you pay less. That's the whole idea of of making the price differential. And I, I think the other thing that that I would say is that we're not cheaper for everybody. I think we are on average. We price where the market is. It's just that we, we flex a lot more. And we if you have a certain characteristic that is lower cost, then you'll get that discount where you don't get somewhere else. If you have a barbecue and you want a barbecue, you might be paying 5% more, 10% more with us, but you could do it, right? And you, you, you can have a peace of mind. Yeah, awesome. Rob? Yeah, Atai, I'm tell me a little bit about you know your distribution model. You've mentioned digital, but you've also mentioned that you've talked with, with brokers. I would imagine like this is one of the biggest challenges is um, connecting with that uh, audience that you're kind of looking to reach out to. 
I, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that actually start as tech companies, right? Trying to sell into the insurance industry and they get frustrated because the sales cycle is 12, 18, 24 months. And you know, now that a lot of folks have gone this kind of MGA route uh, and eventually becoming full stack, you know, many companies are looking to make that pivot. What they don't always appreciate is that they're kind of trading one set of problems for another. So all <laughs> the challenges that you're having with selling into the insurance company, well, now you've got that in terms of you know trying to find right distribution, trying to find uh, partners to provide coverage forms, things like that. So maybe you could just talk about like how are you getting the the word out about Honeycomb and uh, what have you learned so far. Yeah. So um, our, our approach as a strategy to be omni-channel because we want to have the best product and and to be the most attractive to all of our customers. And customers have different preferences preferences in terms of purchase. Um, the traditional way to buy this policy has always been through brokers. Before we came into the market, there was no way you type in multifamily landlord insurance. You'd go into Travelers and then it would, or or Geico or Geico not, but like Travelers or Liberty, and they would eventually either allow you to connect with an agent or would get you into the quote form. But it was the quote form for condo insurance and not for what you're looking for. So we wanted to open that opportunity for the early adopters, and we've we've initially also gotten a bunch of feedback about people who are younger owners or in certain areas like San Francisco and New York that preferred to interact online. But we also appreciate and understand that this is this is a product that's been traditionally sold through brokers and most of the policies are actually quite large. So what we see is it's kind of a nice natural breakout where you know if it's a $2000 policy for a duplex or a triplex in San Francisco which is most of what you have in San Francisco um, it it's very natural to go online and usually the brokers prefer not to do that because it's a very small policy it takes almost the same amount of time it creates the same amount of exposure for the broker for you know and all that and it's only like you know 10 15% on $2000 um so, so right now we do both. And I think one of the big things that, and again, we, we started building the product to the brokers after having an experience like that. Adam Cherubini, Cherubini who's our co-founder and our chief revenue officer, has done uh, quite a few uh, rollouts of new NGA products to the market, including Pine Insurance's product. And he brought a lot of experience from there on like, what moves the needle for the brokers? What are they looking for? And and then so we when we started thinking about okay what product we offer to the brokers we thought about the brokers as our main partners but we also know that there is a certain part of the of the market that prefers to buy directly and we, we now we have both of them we honestly don't see a lot of conflict there because there there is that pretty natural breakout and you know whatever comes through brokers is either business that the brokers have always had or larger policies or more complex policies but the broker has a pretty key role here because, you know, it, there's like 10 or 15 different components of coverage here and they're not that straightforward. You know, some of them are more straightforward, like, you know, limit, but even the limit of the property, you know, do you use $250 for replacement cost? Do you factor in inflation? Do you think about labor costs and, and lumber costs going up in the U.S.? That's not something that somebody who's like a consumer going to buy a, an insurance for a duplex has in mind, but the brokers do and we do. So it's I think it's that angle that it makes sense for us to work with the brokers and, and they're a very good partner for us. And what we're trying to do is to give them as much simplicity and efficiency as I can. At the same time, we do want to serve those guys who are we're saying, look, you know, we had people like that. We had people initially in the in the Agilius days, we got consumers in and we called some of them. You know, we wanted to understand who you are. What do you like? What what do you like about the experience? What haven't you found somewhere else? And some of them would tell us, don't call us, don't call us. And because we came online, we, we were looking for our online experience. Let me do my business online with you. That's why I, I prefer to work with, with you and, and I don't go to somebody else. So really trying to serve both both areas um, and also, also understanding that this is a pretty complex product. So I think eventually, definitely for the policies that are four or $5,000 and above, it makes sense to work through a broker. Yeah. So let's talk about short term versus long term versus it's a much more dynamic market than it used to be in the area of landlord and HOA insurance. So are you covering short term rentals and long term rentals and owner occupied? Uh, Where where have you had to draw the line on what you're going to cover? Yeah, so currently we don't do like pure short-term rental. I mean, if it's owner-occupied or if it's a building that does allow uh, short-term rentals occasionally, we, we, we can do it. But if it's basically just a building that every two or three weeks 
people change consistently, then we, we don't do that. Long term, we want to cover this. I think it's it's an area that is interesting. I think long term, we see a lot of opportunity to expand beyond the core market into single family landlord. There's a big market out there for that, which we currently don't cover uh, that much. And um, you know, there's other elements of maintaining the property that really go hand in hand with the insurance policy. And that's that's an area that we believe by by helping the landlords and the HOAs do things more in a more streamlined way, we can help them. We can help us too, because then we can help them work with the best the suppliers that are out there, maintenance people that are, are out there. So that's something we've started thinking about. And it also ties into our, our approach of being proactive or having a proactive um, interaction with the customers. We send alerts. If there's something that they need to be, that, that our customers need to be aware of, or if we can help them take the right action at a certain moment of time, then we, we do that. We, we don't just uh, you know sell the policy and then come talk with us if you have a claim. We want to start getting in closer touch with our customers on these things and help them maintain the property, help them deal with other elements that relate to the property and to the maintenance, and, and who have, which eventually influence the level of risk that we have. So kind of that's that's kind of where we think we'll go after we cover this market and after we cover some of the adjacent markets for insurance. Excellent, Rob. Yeah, Ty, I'm I'm fascinated uh, with what you've kind of painted as your uh, your roadmap. I see parallels with companies like Hippo, right, where um, whether you sell direct or whether you sell through an intermediate like an agent or a broker, um, as the carrier, you're really going beyond traditional incumbents. Uh, which is, hey, once I've sold the policy, right? If I don't hear from you for a year, right? That's 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 good news, right? And I only expect to hear from you if you have a question about maybe an increasing premium, or if you have, of course, a a claim where you're providing information, you're providing services, you know, you're actually helping them. I know this is something a lot of incumbents have you know paid lip service to, but I do feel like uh, startups uh, such as Honeycomb and others, because you're having this intentional interaction on a fairly regular basis um, with your customer, again, even if you're sold through a broker, you actually know your customers a lot better than traditional incumbents typically know their customers uh, where they don't have a very immersive relationship. And obviously we've seen products such as embedded insurance become very popular in others. So just do you have any thoughts about, I guess, that type of relationship you're building with your customer? Is that something that um, they seem very receptive to? Do you see that as a competitive advantage going forward? Yeah, so I, I definitely see that as a competitive advantage exactly because of the things that you've mentioned. It's something that we haven't really seen being done very well. And I think it's really relating to enablement through data and data-driven technologies because we can't have people call these guys every time there's a storm or you know start instructing each of our customers. But if you're plugged into weather services and you can actually and you can actually go through the data of claims and figure out that you want to mitigate those areas and you don't have to mitigate those other areas, then you create efficiency by not nudging your customers too many times, but do nudging them on something that you think is critical. I think I think the secret is really finding that right balance because customers you know they want to. They don't want to be called by their insurance company too many times. They don't want to be alerted for things that are kind of marginal. But I think they do understand, and that's another thing. If we message that correctly, if we if we tie it into discounts, which is something we do too, um, we send mitigation notifications, and if we see people complying with that consistently, we notify them at the end of the of the insurance period. Hey, because you answered our our pings and shovel the driveway from from snow and you get another five percent discount i think if you kind of educate the customer that being responsive eventually results in savings for them then they accept it if you just start calling them and pinging them day and night on on stuff that is not really needle moving then they'll switch away so i think it's really important and we keep thinking about this you know what do we want to alert them on what do we want to be proactive on and what are things that you know if they're not needle moving you want to stay away from um iot is another another topic i think iot is super interesting but I think the level of friction of having IoT in each building is something that we've been thinking about. And we're still on the fence on like, does it make sense? Is that bringing more data, uh, enough data for like the installation process, which sometimes, you know, people do have trouble with that. And you end up sending somebody in person. Uh, I think we're much more about like using the existing infrastructure where it's the smartphone 
whether it's the the uh, the router that the the ISP has already installed, which is you know get some data rather than trying to get another device there. Not to say that there aren't any interesting IoT devices, but I think in in the market we're playing in, IoT is like you know so far. You know, first of all, let's get people quotes online. Let's get them coverage that you know is bespoke and not cookie cutter. Let's allow them to get discounts for things that they deserve. Let's use all of the existing third-party data that is out there and the data that we can collect from people's smartphones. And then maybe, but there's just so much more that we can cover with the, you know, the simpler things. Awesome. Yeah, Ty, let's, let's wrap up our conversation by just talking about the guts, technically speaking, right? I'm, I'm a software developer, so I like talking about the technology behind it. Uh, what did you build yourself versus what did you source out? Like, did you build your own claim software? Did you build your own policy management? Did you build your own quoting engine? Uh, what What was the, you don't have to describe the technical difficulties behind the uh, the secret sauce, uh, but I'd just like to understand, you know, what you built versus what you uh, what you licensed. Yeah, so claims is something that we we don't do in house right now. Our market is more of a kind of a low frequency or medium frequency, high severity type of claim. So I think it's right now there's just not not that many claims, and we have a great partner who does that for us. Um, so we didn't build a claim software to manage it. We tried to get to market as quickly as possible. So we did want to use existing pieces that are out there, but we didn't find out. We didn't find one that was actually good enough for us in terms of the latency. Um, we tried a few. We actually spent a few good months really trying to integrate with, with one of the providers. So we did build our uh, policy admin system on our own. We built our rating engine on our own. And we built the unique technology that does those additional things beyond just the model, um, like taking an image. So real quick. Your policy system, did most of your time go into building your policy system? I mean, big carriers will spend hundreds of millions of dollars adopting a policy system. Did you did, did you actually write your own, you know, quoting, rating, policy issuance, policy binder, certificate issuance, commission management, broker appointments and terminations? Like, did you go through that entire process and build all of that? Pretty much. I think my co-founder would have been, would have felt proud on, you know, how they were able to do that. I mean, it took them about a year, you know. Uh, not a huge team, but, um, and again, you think about this, we think about this always very Pareto, right? There are certain areas that don't get used that frequently. So we might not invest in creating the most amazing experience if we only have 50 claims a year, right? So maybe that is something that, you know, we can partner with somebody who has a system, but for the quoting, which happens all the time and and hundred percent of our business and for all, you know, policy issuance, the forms, we, we built everything. We didn't want to, but we couldn't find we couldn't find something that didn't eventually limit our flexibility. Um, and I've heard I've heard similar stories from others. Like I've I've actually talked with some of my peer CEOs and I heard a similar story. I still we still went because we really wanted to get to market quickly and tried, really tried to work with a provider. It was just not a fit for for the type of operation we were trying to build, and um, and it's it's really why I'm, I'm I'm super proud of the team and they were able to do that on their own throughout the period that we were also doing other things. We were building partnerships with reinsurers. We were building partnerships with distribution partners. So um, that's that's a lot of what we've done. I'd say in the year before uh, our launch in July is is really building all of those pieces. It's right code. I mean, mind you, policy systems take quite a bit of time. I mean, lar- large carriers can take years and hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. So it's no surprise that it would be the lion's share of what you're really doing. And it's at the heart of your ability to underwrite more quickly, right? I mean, this whole thing falls apart if you just end up with a bunch of underwriters sitting in rooms reviewing manual applications, doesn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm in retrospect, I'm happy that we did it because I see how much power it gives us to roll new things every week into the system because it's our code. But it wasn't it wasn't trivial. It wasn't a trivial decision. I think we, you know, we probably could have could have done well if, if, the, if there was an external system. But I think eventually what I'm seeing right now is that this would probably have been a solution for the first year or two because we're trying to roll out so many new things quickly that I, I, I feel that it would have been a lot more difficult if it wasn't a homegrown system. For sure. Rob? 
Yeah, Ty, you just kind of reminded me of this whole idea of like mapping out the customer journey, right? And there's kind of this concept for those that specialize in that and uh, kind of the peak end phenomena that, you know, you might have multi-steps process, you might have multiple processes, but what customers really remember is, you know, the best part of your process, the worst part of your process, and then actually the very end, right? And so you want that end experience to be kind of on an up note. You just don't have the time, the resources to invest in an outstanding experience along every vector, every dimension. So that's where you want to, you know, you don't necessarily want anything to be a bad experience, right? But you can have some that are just you know, equivalent, right? To, to the industry standard, right? But then some, you obviously want to uh, be that differentiator from your competitor. So I, I think that approach makes the sense. And this whole build versus buy, right? I know is is really, really challenging. I'd be curious as we visit down the line, um, you know, if you have to totally overhaul your system. One of the things that's always struck me is I've talked to a lot of insure techs that three to five years in, they talk about technical debt, right? And, oh, we need to throw out our old policy admin system and, and build a whole new one, right? Or, or majorly, <laughs> majorly upgrade. And it's like, oh my God, if you're at a existing care right you're talking about technical debt you're talking about stuff that's 30 or 40 years old not three or four years old yeah exactly so james i know you know about the complexities right you just rolled out a, a new claim system and i mean it's it's no small feat for sure oh lord do i rob and that's <laughs> the uh that's the thing certainly we we built we just rolled out a new claim system called TerraClaim, and it's uh you know we're doing a comp GL auto property straight out of the gate. And uh, it is extremely complicated. Uh, we are building out um, the beginnings of, uh, we, we have policy storage, right? The ability to have all the clients and all the policies and all their limits, because you have to have that to adjudicate the claims. You got to know what the policy limits are. And so, you know, then you have inevitably get into policy management because there's so many MGAs coming on the market that are just brokers. I, I just kind of say it, call them brokers who want more commission. Uh, they're becoming MGAs. They're going to TP to have the TPAs act as a carrier in name only, right? Like where they basically do the underwriting and they do the claims management and and the MGA does as little as possible. Basically, they sell the policy and they really want the TPA to bear the brunt of the administrative burden. Uh, but now TPAs are being forced to buy carrier grade policy management systems because they're having to do these robust. And, and in particular, you throw PEOs in that mix and it gets really complicated because PEOs have have substantially complicated the uh, the administration of policies uh, in the uh, in the work comps sphere. So it, it, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, that, look, there, there's a, I'm just going to say, I'm going to say it. There's MGAs who I call super brokers, right? They're brokers who want more commission. And then there's digital MGAs that are actually writing their own code and rethinking the entire process. And they will both try to make themselves look the same way on a website, right? You go to the website and they'll both try and say it's streamlined in real time. Usually the difference you can tell is if they will issue a price immediately or they say, we'll call you in 24 hours when you're done with the online forum, right? They'll say instant quoting, but the uh, the the super brokers will say, hey, we'll call you in 24 hours. In other words, all this is is a web form. We're still doing the same crap on the back end. We probably have a TPA who's doing underwriting and claims management for us. We probably don't have any of our own tech. It's a, it's a group of brokers who want to double their commission. And so that's the, that's kind of my my problem with the market is you have you have the the, the super brokers are confusing the 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 MG. MGA MGU market a little bit because uh, it's it's getting harder to tell the difference between an insure tech and a super broker and uh, and and usually and this is why I always ask the questions it's are you writing any code or not are you doing this stuff yourself you're really rethinking the process and trying to, to reference your book Rob are you trying to drop the cost of underwriting down are you trying to drop the cost of policy administration down like that those are things that are really truly making the insurance market different. Or are you just creating an MGA in front of the existing markets that are already in the market writing? You know, did you just get power of the pen so you can you can make more money? I mean, that's that's the real question for me all the time in this and all of our conversations, Rob, is is it real insure tech or is it a super broker? Is it real or is it Memorax to date some of us? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's frustrating. Okay, so let's let's wrap up the conversation, Itai. Just what is Itai the future like? Like long term? I don't think we talked about the state rollout. So of course, before we talked, I went on your website. I tried to write business. You don't write in any of the states I own property in. So uh, I am a landlord. I I do own rental property. So you don't write in any of my states. So when it, when are you when are you going to do state rollouts? namely when you're getting to Texas and Michigan and 
Very soon. Very soon. Texas and Michigan, I would say maybe this year even. Yeah. Because they're filed and we're pretty close, I would say. We have a list of, uh, you know, next seven states that are on the way. Um, I mean, we're at, right now we're in, in Illinois and Arizona. Uh, we have Michigan, Ohio, Texas, very close, probably this year, maybe beginning of next year. And then we have California. New York is going to take some time, but it's, it's on the list as one of the first states that we want to be in. And Washington, those are the next ones. And then after that, we roll into all of the other major states. I mean, it's going to take us until the end of 2022 to be in you know, 70% of the market. And then some some remain, remaining parts to be at like, you know, 80, 85% or 80% probably um, in the first part of 2023. But we're, we're, we're going to be covering most of the U.S. up until end of 2022. Yeah. And, and lines of business. What, how, how are you expanding lines of business? Right now, I'd say we're still very focused on multifamily. There's just so much to cover there. And it's a big market. It's, you know, 25-ish billion, 22, 25 billion. So that's really the focus right now for next 18 months. After that, there's, you know, again, some cross-selling in the commercial line space. We're still thinking about this. There's some potential cross-selling into some products that are, you know, our tenants uh, or or um, our, our condo owners need. And, and, you know, we already interact with some of them. But that's that's far, farther along. And, and the other thing that's happening in parallel to state expansion and insurance product expansion is new features that we roll out. I mean, there's going to be more and more things that the customers can get without feeding in additional information. There could be discounts that they could get just by before the quote, taking a video of the property. And then we analyze this in real time and we we give them you know even deeper discounts. There's going to be those mitigation notifications that we send around those very key items like snow and 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 uh and ice for example which is a big driver of the gl claims that are starting to come in this winter so those are i'd say the first things that we'll see coming in and then eventually i think the the expansion into other lines too awesome rob any close out question or comment just one with with honeycomb i definitely think this is a, a market that's ripe for innovation that's ripe for uh, some new options because uh, i do feel like it's been underserved for many years and you know, i think about a company like lemonade and yes i'm going to bring them up in my news item again this week um, that started with renter's insurance right which tended to be a little bit of a backwater for personal lines carriers right and then they quickly obviously went into home then pet then life and, and you know we've had the big announcement recently about auto insurance so um you know you articulated kind of a similar pathway but in the commercial line space and i know a lot of these uh you know landlords multifamily they've been underserved for a long time it is a challenging risk as you alluded to and so there's reasons why it maybe has been underserved but um it's a large market as you articulated and there's a, a lot of room to grow so uh keep us posted and congratulations on your success to date Thank you. We'll do. And, and thank you so much again for having me here. Really excited about the next things that we're doing and, and really excited about the opportunity to share things here with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, man. No, we got uh, two news stories this week. Rob, what you got for us this week? Yeah, I hate to keep beating the drum. So I, I, I promised listeners uh, that we won't always talk about Lemonade <laughs> every single week, but they're making a lot of news. And so this week... But... <laughs> Love them or hate them, right? They're always in the news and we always got to talk about them. So uh, this week, big news. It was a little bit of personal connection. Uh, somebody that I, I knew and, and worked with for many years at USA, uh, their chief claims officer, Sean Burgess, uh, made an announcement. And I put a link here to the blog on, on Lemonade's site uh, that he is now leaving USA to become the chief claims officer at Lemonade. And this is after 27 years of service with USA. So you know, we've seen this trend for a long time of uh, people leaving incumbents to uh, become either start their own company or join at senior positions with startups. And you know, this is just maybe the most recent and frankly, one of the most prominent moves that I've seen. And you know, again, USA is an outstanding company. They're known for being in very innovative. But yet, you know, here he is making this move after 27 years. So when I talk to uh, a lot of incumbents and we talk about talent management all the time and that, hey, you can't have your underwriters and, and claims professionals and others spend five to 10 years in this kind of apprenticeship model before they make it to a senior, before they have increasing level of authority to maybe they make it to a management position and, and become an executive after 20 years. Nobody sits around for that anymore. And we all know that the grass is greener on the other side. And so, A, you got to worry about, of course, that talent that's leaving. But I also tell them, you got to worry about the 
talent that's staying, right? Because those folks that are content with their job that aren't pushing you from an innovation standpoint <laughs> or whatnot. So like, don't just look at your retention ratio, like worry about who's staying, right? And worry about who's leaving. So I think this one move really kind of highlights that broader point. And then the second one, Well, that go ahead, James. Rob, that's going to be a very unpopular state. That's going to be a very unpopular statement with some carriers because they hang their hat on their best places to work ratings and they hang their hat on, you know, low turnover numbers on employees. And, and sometimes you, you actually have to wonder, like if the handful you're turning over are the ones that are, that are actually the innovators going somewhere else they can innovate. It's not necessarily a great thing. Now, high turnover can be very expensive and, and unhappy employees are very expensive. So I'm not trying to undermine those, but you do have to worry about that. Are the great innovators leaving and what I'm left with to the folks that are totally status quo? That can really cripple an organization as well. So you gotta, you gotta be, uh, gotta be aware and careful about that. Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of institutional knowledge that's that's walking out a d- door. And you know, I talk about obviously there's tons of opportunities. I think AI needs to be central in everybody's strategy uh, because that's ultimately where a lot of this knowledge needs to live is in your systems digitally. But we're not there yet, and so there's a lot of tacit knowledge that people have gained about your company, about your systems, about how you do business, your processes, etc. And when these folks walk out the door, they're not easy to replace. You can't always just bring in an equivalent from another carrier, and so there's a little bit of robbing Peter to pay Paul that's been going on in the space. But I do think it's a long-term concern for a lot of incumbents. So it's, it's not just about how many people are leaving, but right, who is, is leaving as well. Yeah. And then uh, for my second item, I've got a great interview that was in coverage this week. And I'm going to unfortunately probably butcher this woman's name, but Claire Alion, <laughs> it's a French name, from a company called IMS. Uh, explains why every auto insurer should be a little concerned. So this kind of caught my eye. It's a great interview. Uh, they are a telematics provider. She compares the U.S. adoption with Europe, which has obviously been ahead of the U.S., talks about the rise in, in you know, pay-per-mile, uh, talks about some of the stuff that they're doing with Tesla. They're actually unique at IMS because they actually started a digital insurer called Carrot, which they ended up kind of uh, selling off and, and having an exit on. So they've kind of, I guess, you know, walk the talk, uh, so to speak. So not only do they sell to carriers all over the world, but they actually started their own digital insurer. So anyway, a lot of fascinating insights in that interview. I highly encourage folks to uh, check it out. Awesome. And, uh, you know, of course, also in Lemonade News, oh, it's not the Lemonade News show, but again, people are talking about it. Investors are pissed because Lemonade's Metro Mile deal overshadowed generally encouraging Q3 results. So they they, they, had, they had some generally encouraging results, but the decision to acquire struggling paper mile auto insurer Metro Mile, uh, and they had a, lo- a loss ratio that spiked higher, initially drowned out the otherwise encouraging news and the results. So just a side note, sometimes the timing on announcements for quarterly earnings and when you announce things can uh, can bite you in the butt. And lastly, uh, Saudi fintech, it's insured tech, Rasan secured $24 million in their latest funding round. It was led by Impact 466, a Saudi asset manager and advisor, and uh, they're trying to accelerate growth and deployment. So check that out, uh, Saudi. It's a Saudi fintech, insured tech, Rasan, R-A-S-A-N, raised a bunch of dinero. Always good having a good chat. Again, Itai, thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And as always, the most interesting man in insurance, Rob Galbraith. Uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Gobble, 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 gobble. <laughs> Enjoy the week off, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sounds good, James. It's great to have you on. Have a happy Thanksgiving, James. I know you'll really enjoy the time with your family and the football game in Baton Rouge. Yeah, Giga Maggie. So hopefully we'll beat LSU and uh, go to a somewhat decent bowl game since we're out of contention. So I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to that. This has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by Jamie Knowledge. That's jamieknowledge.com. It's about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton, our creator producer and thank you for joining us we're taking you on a journey through insurance tech so enjoy the ride and geek out see you in a couple weeks